Our scripture this morning is Ecclesiastes chapter 7, and we'll be reading through verse 22. Ecclesiastes 7, 14 through 22. When times are good, be happy, but when times are bad, consider. God has made the one as well as the other. Therefore, a man cannot discover anything about his future. In this meaningless of life of mine, I have seen both of these a righteous man perishing in his righteousness, and a wicked man living long in his wickedness. Do not be over-righteous, neither be over-wise. Why destroy yourself? Do not be over-wicked, and do not be a fool. Why die before your time? It is good to grasp the one and not let go of the other. The man who hears God will avoid all extremes. Wisdom makes one wise, I'm sorry, wisdom makes one wise man more powerful than ten rulers in a city. There is not a righteous man on earth who does what is right and never sins. Do not pay attention to every word people say, or you may hear hear your servant cursing you. For you know in your heart that many times you yourself have cursed others. This is God's word. Amen. Thank you. Well, go ahead and find your Bibles again. Uh, We do have junior worship this morning, so uh, if you are kindergarten through third grade, the flag's going to be coming around. Uh, If you're new or visiting and you want to go down and see what's going on there, feel free to follow them out, Mom and Dad. That's great, too. Um, And one last announcement I forgot this morning, if there weren't already enough. Um, The high school book discussion that was going to meet afterwards for lunch. We're going to go ahead and reschedule that because a lot of people can't make it. So, Um, But find your Bibles. Uh, You can use the Bible in the rack in front of you and make your way to the book of Ecclesiastes. If you're using the Pew Bible, that's on page 663. And we are in Ecclesiastes 7, 14 through 22. I decided to shorten the text we were going to cover this morning. Uh, We were going to go through the end of the chapter, but we'll pick that up next week. This is the week that uh, several college students are returning to campus or heading off for the first time. So we want to be in special prayer for them and for the year ahead of them. As uh, many of you know, uh, college, my college experience is one of the most formative times in my life. That is where I learned how to walk with the Lord. I was a brand new Christian when I went off to the University of Nebraska. And in my first couple of years in a campus ministry, that's where I learned how to read my Bible, how to pray, how to share my faith, uh, and and all of those things. And how how to help others uh, do those same things. But I remember a time my sophomore year of college when everything I thought I knew about walking with God was all of a sudden called into question. I encountered some trial in my life. Some, uh, something went wrong in my world. I honestly don't remember what it was. Let's try to figure it out this week. But I remember feeling completely lost. I remember standing on the corner of 17th Street and G Street, walking to campus, uh, just wrestling with God. I had been praying, I had been reading my Bible, I'd been sharing my faith, I'd been memorizing scripture, I'd been discipling another student, and now all of a sudden the wheels were falling on, falling off on life, and I was clueless. Everything I had 
learned about how to walk with God, all of a sudden I wondered if it even worked. Because why was this happening then? Um, I mean, what, what had I done wrong? What, what am I not doing that I need to start doing so that God will start blessing me again? Because this isn't how I thought it was going to work. Um, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands this morning. But I am honestly curious whether I'm the only one in this room who's had an experience like that where you think things are good with you and God and then all of a sudden something terrible happens and you're, you're left to wonder, what, what did I do wrong? What did I do wrong? Was it because I felt that nudge to go share the gospel with someone at Panera and I didn't do it? And now you're punishing me. I'll do it next time, Lord. You know, is it because I'm not reading my Bible enough? I'm, I'm slacking in my quiet times. I'm not giving enough to the church. What am I doing wrong, Lord? Now, it is a good thing to want to please the Lord, to want to honor God with our lives, to do these things for God. Uh, in fact, we were made for God's pleasure, to uh, delight in Him, to make much of His name in this earth through lives of holiness and obedience. But what's the connection between trying to please God and enjoying the blessings of God? In other words, put it another way, what's the connection between doing good for the Lord and receiving good things from the Lord? That's the question. You know, how do these two things fit together? And that's precisely the puzzle that the preacher is trying to figure out in our passage this morning in Ecclesiastes 7. Uh, verses 14 to 22. So let's pray and then let's look together at this passage. Lord, we recognize that there are so many times in our life where what we thought was going to happen because of our relationship with you doesn't, and then we're left with a question mark and even anger and frustration. And Lord, I just pray this morning that you would give us insight into your word and into your heart to see what's going on then and what it really means and looks like to seek to please and honor you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you're just joining us, we've been on a journey through the book of Ecclesiastes for several months, um, following the preacher who was probably the ancient King Solomon in his attempt to find lasting significance and gain in this world what he calls under the sun, and what we can see and experience and, and put our hands around here in this life. And uh, as he, we followed him in his search for something that lasts, we found with him that everything is actually vapor. There's nothing in this life under the sun setting God apart for the moment. Uh, there's nothing, whether it's work or wealth or relationships or whatever. There's nothing that you can put your hands around to make sense of it, to hold on to it, or to find lasting gain and significance. Life is vapor. It's smoke. It's vanity. That's what we've seen so far. So the question then becomes, how do we live as God's people in a world that doesn't make sense, in a world that doesn't satisfy and doesn't always work the way that it's supposed to? And the second half of the book is set to answer that question, at least in part for us, as Solomon walks through that. This is his burden in chapter 7 through 12. Last week, we saw 
what lessons could be learned from the funeral parlor. How the reality of death helps us know how to live as God's people in a fallen world. With a sober-mindedness and with a patient hope in the God who raises the dead. Well, our passage this morning picks up that same recognition that things don't work the way they should. And then asks the question, so... So how does that fact relate to our desire and effort to please God? What do we do with that if in our attempt to please God, things don't always go the way they should? What's the connection between doing good things for the Lord and receiving good things from the Lord? What Solomon calls wisdom and righteousness, the good things we do for him. What's the connection between that and and receiving his blessing, especially when there's so many bad things in this world? That's the question. How did those two puzzle pieces fit together? Our default mode as humans, or at least as fallen humans, is to think that doing good for the Lord should result in receiving good things from the Lord. That's how we are wired to think and operate. There's another word for that. It's called performance. Performance. Our world operates by performance. We have job performance reviews at work where if we do good things for the company, we receive good things from the company, like bonuses and raises. We are obsessed with athletic performance, such that athletes feel the need to take, quote, performance-enhancing drugs because nature and the gym just don't cut it anymore. We even treat most of our relationships like a performance. If you do this for me, I'll do this for you. If you let me down, you're going to have to make it up. A performance. That's our default mode under the sun. And the truth is, we like performance-based relationships. Because it helps us know what we can expect. You know, if my grade on a test, if my grade in a class is based on my performance on a test, then I know that if I do well on that test, I'm going to get a good grade in that class. I know that if I bomb the test, I'm going to get a bad grade. I know why that happened, where it came from, and what to do about it next time. There's safety and control in a performance-based relationship, and we like that. We like being able to anticipate What's going to come next based on how we're living? You know, how much easier would it be in a life spoiled by sin if we knew that in order to get X, Y, and Z, all we have to do is A, B, and C, and then that secures it? That's a, that's a nice paradigm, a nice pattern. But if we get a great grade on the test and receive a poor grade in the class, we don't have a category for that one. That one doesn't compute. You know, something must be wrong. And we feel that we have the right to demand better because we did well on that test. So we're going to protest to the professor or whatever because what we got does not reflect our performance. We like the idea of performance-based relationships. And we like that thought with God, too. But is it true? Is it true? Does God really work that way? And if not, then how can we know what to expect when we relate from, with him? 
Now, what happens when we do well on the test, but we still get a bad grade in the class? What happens when our friend does miserably and God blesses him instead? Our passage this morning gives us four reasons why God is not asking us to perform for him. Four reasons why God is not asking us in our relationship to perform for him. It doesn't work that way. Rather, what we're going to see is that whatever life holds for us, whether good or bad, both of those come from God's gracious and sovereign hand. And so we seek to please God, not because of what we get out of him, but because he's worth it. We seek to please God because he's worth it. So, four reasons of why life is not a performance for God. The first one is in verse 14. God tells us he doesn't work that way. God tells us he doesn't work that way. In verse 14. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Now for many of us, especially those who are living the day of adversity right now. This is hard to understand. This is hard. I mean, the first part makes a lot of sense. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. We, we know how to do that. We know how to party at birthday parties. We know how to rejoice over the rays and, and so on. But what does it mean that bad days also come from God's hand? Well, it does not mean that bad days were part of God's design in the beginning. As the last verse in this chapter says, See, this alone I found. God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. God made us good, but we've been plotting his overthrow ever since then. So, you know, sorrow, suffering, death, these are systemic results of human sin and rebellion in God's good creation. They're not the way he designed it to work. Bad days are not the way it's supposed to be. But the fact that both bad days and good days come from God's hand does mean that God's rule over this world has not spiraled hopelessly out of control. He's still on his throne. He's still working out his perfect plan to bring glory to his name in all of the earth. And he's doing it through both prosperity and adversity. He's working out his plan through both. We saw this back in chapter 3, in verse 11. You know, we were looking there at how there's a time to be born and a time to die. There's a time to laugh. There's a time to weep. And how all of these things come from God's hand. Well, chapter 3, verse 11 says, He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from beginning to end. So our sovereign and gracious God makes every event beautiful or fitting or appropriate in its time, according to his plan. The only problem is that his plan is so wonderful and expansive that we can't take the whole thing in. All we can see is this fuzzy glimpse in the middle, and we can't see the frame and how it all fits together. And so, therefore, that means we can't find out anything about what's going to come after us either. 
relating with God isn't as simple as good test grade equals good class grade. We cannot predict our future based on our performance. Relating with God instead sometimes means that God uses trials and and difficult things in our life to accomplish his plan, just as he used something so tragic and horrible as the cross in order to rescue the world. Sometimes God works his plan out through adversity and not just prosperity. And again, the hard part of that for us is realizing that means we're not in control. That we can't manipulate our outcome based on our behavior like we'd like to. But the good news is that God is. God is in control. And he will be faithful to accomplish his purposes, whether that means good days or bad days, according to his grace and the gospel of Christ. So we we can't perform for God. Instead, we have to rest on the grace of God. And that's the opposite of performance. Grace. Grace is the opposite of performance. Grace is when God gives us something utterly incredible and wonderful, even though we deserve something completely terrible. It's not just unmerited favor, like I'm a blank slate and I don't deserve anything and then you give me something good. I deserve the opposite because of my sin. And God gives me something wonderful despite that because of what Jesus has done. That's grace. We deserve judgment for our sin and our rebellion. Instead, through faith in Jesus, God deals justly with our sin. He punishes it in Christ, but then deals graciously with sinners. Graciously with sinners. Because Jesus lived the life that we were supposed to live but couldn't. Died the death to take that penalty we deserved on himself. God is free to give us the opposite of what we deserve. He's free to give us grace. New life instead of eternal death. Hope instead of despair. Freedom instead of bondage. A place in God's family instead of eternity outside of God's presence. And by grace, God is with us both in the day of prosperity and in the day of adversity to carry us through them. Jesus knows what adversity feels like. Jesus knows what it's like for the wheels to fall off in life, to be completely perfect before God and yet to face the greatest evil this world has ever thought of. Hebrews tells us that in Jesus, we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We want to figure out how our performance is going to affect God's blessing for us because then maybe we can kind of control the outcome of our lives. But relating with God is not a performance. It's about grace. It's about trusting in God's sovereign 
plan and relying every day on the grace we have in Jesus. There's a second reason, according to our passage, that uh, relationship with God is clearly not a performance, and that's in verse 15. Experience tells us it doesn't work this way either. Experience tells us that it doesn't work this way. Verse 15. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Now, that doesn't make sense. That's the opposite of what we think should happen. You know, we, again, we, we like the idea of maybe being able to control things by our performance, but if we step back and look at the world, we see very quickly that is not how it works. When we lived in Lincoln, we had friends uh, at our church there, a godly young couple who celebrated their first pregnancy only to, to discover about 20 or 25 weeks in that their child had trisomy 18 which is a, a chromosomal, chromosomal disorder. Elizabeth lived for five days after she was born. A year later, their son Joseph was born. Joseph means the Lord adds. God added to their family. And he died in his sleep at 13 months. What do you do with that? Here's a godly young couple whom you know would raise their kids to, to love Jesus. And there's so many families having so many kids, and they will never hear their parents speak of Christ. If we believe that what comes from God's hand is based on our performance, then what do you say to someone hurting that way? I guess you didn't pray hard enough. I guess you didn't believe strong enough. Maybe there's some hidden sin in your life. We start to sound like Job's accusers. We have nothing to offer them but guilt and scorn and shame if life is a performance. But if God is working something out that none of us can see, we don't have to try and jam the puzzle pieces together so that, you know, in order to try and search for an explanation. We can simply put our arm around those who are hurting. And we can find comfort together in a God who is gracious and compassionate. Who's familiar with our sufferings. And who will one day deliver us from all of that evil. And the new creation to come. That is grace, not performance. A third reason that our relationship with God's not a show, it's not a performance. There's utter confusion for those who try to live that way. There's utter confusion for those who try to live that way, verses 16 through 18. So verse 16, be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? Now, full confession. Verse 16 is one of those verses that makes pastors sweat when they come to it. 
what in the world does that mean, and how am I supposed to preach that? Don't be overly righteous. I mean, what do you, how can you be overly righteous? What, what the preacher is telling us here is not to live as though life is a performance such that you have to exaggerate your righteousness and your wisdom in order to avoid the fate of the righteous person who died young in verse 15. So, you know, if you think that by beefing up your righteousness and beefing up your wisdom, you know, being extra righteous, extra wise, you can somehow control the outcome of your life and avoid sorrow and suffering, then what he's saying is you're in for a big shock. It doesn't work that way. In fact, you know, destroy yourself is maybe a little bit too strong here. Be ruined or, or find yourself appalled is, is a little bit better. Pleasing God doesn't work that way. The puzzle pieces do not line up. And if we try and pretend that they do, that I really can manipulate this certain outcome for my life, that I am going to find myself utterly confused and frustrated and even angry when the wheels do fall off and I feel like God hasn't kept up his side of the bargain. There's utter confusion for people who live that way. But pleasing God is not about what we get out of it. It's about what God gets out of it. It's his honor, his glory, his praise. We seek to please God because he's worth it. Because he's worth it. Our relationship should not be one of performance, but one of worship. And the, there's a difference between those two. It's, it's simple, but it's very subtle. A life of performance says, I obey God because I get good things from him. And if I'm extra righteous, I get extra good things. A life of worship says, I obey God because God is good. Because God is worth it. Because there's nothing more satisfying in this world than knowing him. You created nothing that gives me more pleasure than you, as we heard. And he alone is worthy of my obedience and my worship, regardless of whatever life holds. Doing good for God does not secure God's blessings. Not in this life. And not even in the next. Grace secures God's blessings in the next and in whatever shape they take in this life. But just because you know, doing good doesn't secure God's blessings, you know, then it's kind of like, well, so why obey? What, what's the point now if I'm not going to get anything out of it? Maybe I should just go plunge headlong into wickedness and have fun for a while first. You know? Well, Solomon warns us against that as well. You know, in verse 17, don't be overly wicked either and, and perish before your time. You know, wickedness does have a tendency to mess things up in our world. So there are, two, there are two warnings in this verse. Not to exaggerate our righteousness as though we think we'll somehow avoid suffering, but also not to plunge headlong into wickedness either. And those who fear God, those who recognize that God is God and I am not, will avoid both of those, will heed both of those warnings. And that's what verse 18 tells us. It's good that you should take hold of this and from that, withhold not your hand. Don't let go of that warning. For the one who fears God will come out of both of them. The one who fears God will heed 
both warnings. But there's utter confusion for those who try to perform for God. Praise God that we don't have to. Praise God that when you wake up in the morning, you can wake up with the confidence to know that your greatest need in life has been definitively dealt with in Jesus Christ. You don't have to perform. You don't have to live in the confusion. Finally, we see a fourth reason that our relationship with God is not a performance in verses 19 to 22. Wisdom is good, but our sin gets in the way. Wisdom is good, but our sin gets in the way. Last week, we saw how wisdom is a good thing in this life. Um, How living according to God's design, heeding God's word, really is beneficial for life under the sun, even though everything is vapor. Verse 19 says here, Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in the city. We need the wisdom of God to know how to navigate the vapor, to know how to honor him and please him with our lives in this world. But the benefit of wisdom is cut short by our sin, by our fallenness, which is another reason why performing for God does not work. Because even if the arrangement was that way, none of us would be good enough to do it. And that's what the preacher tells us in verse 20. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Most of us think we're basically good people. And compared to one another, we might not be that far off. But the standard God uses for doing good is not just a little better than that guy, or at least not near as bad as that one. God's standard for goodness is his own goodness, his own holiness. And all it takes is a single sin in our life to fall miserably short of that standard. And so Paul says, very similar to Solomon. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. There's not a righteous person in this world who does what is right and never sins. This is another hard pill to swallow from this passage, especially if we're good at performing. Especially if we're particularly good at putting the show on for God and on for others. Um, But the preacher offers just one illustration to make his point. Verse 21. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows many times you yourself have cursed others. You know, you think of how gossip works and, uh, you know, Maybe think of that scene in uh, uh, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader where Lucy is going through the magician's book and she has the opportunity to eavesdrop on a conversation between a couple of her friends back home and she hears some things that she shouldn't or didn't want to hear. But then it's easy to get mad when that happens. All you got to do is stop for a second and ask, how many times have I done that? How many times have I uttered in my own heart some criticism, some cruel word about someone else, maybe even this morning, getting ready for church. How many times, how long are you going to be in the bathroom? You know, whatever shape it takes. 
all it takes is one little thing. And we've fallen completely short of God's standard of goodness. There is no one righteous who does, not, who does what is righteous and never sins. And so none of us stands perfect before God. Doing good for God cannot win his affections or approval because none of us are ultimately good enough. In fact, performing for God can really only result in one of two things. Either a prideful arrogance when we succeed at what he asks and we think we're something, as opposed to those people who are nothing, or a hopeless despair when we fail again and again and nothing we seem to do seems to make a lick of difference. And so our obedience becomes just a hollow duty. It's a a meaningless activity motivated by guilt and shame and fear instead of joy and grace and love. So what do we do? Once again, we need the gospel of God's grace. We need the grace that reminds us from Galatians, that a person is not declared righteous by works of the law, but through faith in Christ. It's not a performance. We need the grace that is sufficient for us, even in our weakness, as we see in 2 Corinthians 12.9. A grace where God makes much of himself through our weakness and our smallness, even in days of adversity. We need the grace from Titus that teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We need the grace that changes us in order to worship God Not because of what we get out of it, but because he's worth it. Not out of our weak flesh, but out of the strength of his spirit. We need the grace of God for that. So yes, we need wisdom to navigate this vapor and make much of God in the days he gives us. But more than wisdom, we need Jesus. We need our sufficient Savior whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Let's pray and ask God to give us that grace as he has in Christ. Lord, I pray that as this reality sinks in for some of us, maybe it's a reminder, maybe it's clicking for the first time, I pray that in a, in a way every shoulder would feel lightened this morning. That every chin would be raised higher, recognizing that despite all our sin, all our guilt, all our shame, all the ways that we let you down and we take others down with us, That if we are in Jesus, we are your children. We are your precious treasure. We have the strength of your spirit to honor you in ways that we can't do out of our own effort and flesh. 
Thank you that you are not shaking your finger at us every time we mess up, but you're weeping with us and that you are there by your spirit to pick us up and draw us closer to you because of Christ. May he be everything to us, God. We ask it in his name. Amen.